My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Sarah Danielle Rivera. Sarah is a Cuban-Peruvian artist, writer, translator, and educator from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her poetry and fiction have been published in literary journals and anthologies. And in 2017, she was awarded St. Boltoff's Emerging Artist Award. And in 2018, won the Stephen Dunn Prize in Poetry. Her art, which includes drawings, sculpture, and community-based installations, focus on text and space as a kind of social intervention. What's possible from the perspective of art as we think about how we come together and what society we're, we're building? And these public art projects are often developed in collaboration with youth who bring a really important perspective and voice to the question of who we are and who we're becoming. I also personally had the, the amazing good fortune of studying the craft of writing with Sarah. She is an instructor at Grub Street, which is a, uh, an incredible writing nonprofit based here in Boston, Massachusetts. And she focuses uh, especially on teaching the craft of speculative and imaginative literature, things like science fiction and fantasy. It was a, an amazing group, and she brought so much heart and care and uh, perspective and insight to the craft of writing, to the vulnerability of finding a voice and putting it to page. Uh, and in this conversation today, which which in part for me was a really lovely reunion to just see Sarah again and, and hear her and engage with her, we explore these questions of who we are as a species and the societies we built and who we might become through some of her own writing and through uh, the writings of others that we've both read and, and also her poetry. So this is a rich, robust, and beautiful conversation, and I'm excited for you to hear it. So let's get settled in hmm. and hear what Sarah has for us. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Andy. It's so cool to see you. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I want to uh, say this out loud. It's really important to me to say this out loud. Um, and in a way, and in a way I've said this to you, but I want to say it really clearly, like you you, I see you as one of my teachers who came to me in a time in my writing life where I really needed a good teacher. And, uh, I want to thank you for that because you're just such, you're so gifted at, at meeting people where they are in their creative journey and inviting them to lean into that and express their strengths and also work with the parts of their writing that need attention and care and love. Uh, so you're, the class that you taught at Grub Street, I don't even know how many years ago it was at this point, but 
It was just really, really great. And I want to say thank you really explicitly for that. Thank you, Andy. Working with classes like yours and people like you is just one of the great joys of my entire creative life. So it was just as meaningful for me. Mm, mm. How did you find your way to teaching? Um, I, so I taught a little bit in my graduate program. I went straight from undergrad to grad school. So I taught in my MFA program, undergraduate creative writing, but I always had an interest in teaching. And for me, it began with coaching. I was uh, I worked as a tennis coach for the city of Albuquerque from the time I was like 14. And I still feel like I gained all of my first educational um, skills from that space, from working with people of all different ages and learning how to adapt to what they needed. And so I got teaching jobs right when I was out of grad school and I really didn't have too much experience teaching in the arts or teaching writing, but I felt like at least I had that foundation. Mm. Mm. So I started working with Grub Street really right after my graduate program and with the Urbano Project in JP. Yeah, that's so awesome. I love that connection between, between coaching and teaching. Maybe, maybe we'll sort of widen the aperture even more. And I'd love to hear you also say, like, how did you come to writing, to fiction, to poetry as a, as a way of expressing yourself or moving through the world? Like, what, was, what's, what sparked that for you? Well, my sisters and I all came to love books and have an obsession with books through our dad. Our dad was the source of book love in our lives. He was a huge bibliophile and he read constantly. And anytime we were interested in anything growing up, he would always give us a stack of books on that topic for Christmas or for our birthdays. So I was completely immersed in books from the time I was little. Mm -hmm. And naturally my sister and I my older sister and I, from the time we were very little, were writing stories together and writing books together. So it just always felt like an impulse to me. I was writing fan fiction as a middle schooler and high schooler. And that just naturally kind of folded into wanting to explore my own fiction. So I felt like I was always doing it from the time I was a kid. And poetry, I started writing what I thought of as poetry when I was a middle schooler or high schooler. And it was very rhymed. It was very much following the structures of poetry that I was reading in school, very old (laughs) poetry. Um, But I think that my interest in language and my interest in everything that language can do eventually became kind of the heart of my poetry practice. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't write as much poetry as fiction growing up, but I feel like it was always there. Mm-hmm. 
Say more about what language can do. This is something I, I really want to talk to you about because you, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I have a lot of questions I want to ask about that, but let's start there. What what can language do? Well, as you know, I work as a literary translator as well as my own writing. So I've always, my family growing up, we spoke English and Spanish at home. We were a very bilingual household and very bilingual family. So I was always fascinated by the ways we move between language, by things that are expressible in one language and inexpressible in another. Um, And that was a, a big part of sort of the larger work that my family did. My mother was always a translator and interpreter. So I felt like we were always navigating the the limitations and potential of language, mm. you know, within our own minds and and then on the page. And my father was always a phenomenal writer growing up. And I would see that he would write things that had impact. And I knew that language could do that, Um, that language could render something, something that you were holding inexpressible in your mind and in your body or in your emotions, and it could give it some sort of shape Mm. and structure, Mm. and it could become something that you could understand through Mm. that process. Mm. Mm. One one way that... um or at least one way I've heard you speak to the power of language and that you taught in our class and that, that you you've taught in some workshops that I've attended of yours is the power to evoke and build worlds to, to take someone who's reading the language someplace they've never been before and have it feel real to them. Even, even if it is an imaginary invention. And I wonder like, as you talk about just the power of language to impact, to, one language to express something that's inexpressible, the potentials and limitations. How does that intersect with your passion for world building as a, as one of languages devices? I always start with world building by talking to my students about how in fiction and in storytelling, even storytelling outside of fiction and nonfiction and poetry, any time almost we are rendering a story, we are world building, whether you're world building on the scale of an epic fantasy or whether you're writing a short story about your high school wrestling team. Mm. Those are systems and those are worlds and the details of those worlds generate their sense of reality. And as we move through our lives, we occupy so many communities, so many microcosms of worlds that operate by their own sets of rules. So when we're writing a story, the the source of building a world and extracting detail might come from different places. We might, um, if we're writing a story that is set in our real world, a lot of the world building might come from research and observation and personal experience And those three also inform world building when we're inventing imagined worlds. But there might also be some key elements of the world that come purely from imagination. Mm -hmm. Mm. 
looked like there was something else you wanted to say <laughs> another question but. yeah it's just thinking about um you're talking about the potential of language and the potential of world building this is something that i think about a lot and for me the first thing that i notice when i particularly when i'm working with students is that there's an expansiveness and an expanding of consciousness that can come from the act of world building because once you start asking questions about a world once i start asking a writer where do the gender norms gender norms come from in this world how does the education system work mm-hmm. what do people eat what do people wear how is that different from from sort of systems in our world. Once you start to ask those questions, you really quickly become aware that nothing happens in a vacuum, mm-hmm. right? That everything is part of a context, everything is part of a history, everything is part of larger systemic structures. Um, and I think sometimes in our own world, we like to think that certain things happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. That can be dangerous, right? When we think that racism is something that occurs between two people and not part of the power structures of our world, not embedded in the fabric and institutions of our society. Mm. So I see people start to recognize that nothing is neutral and nothing is, there is no baseline normal when you're world building you're looking at Mm. the intricacy and the interconnectedness Mm. of everything Mm. i think that's incredibly important to social consciousness Mm. Mm. yeah this uh expansion of consciousness feels what do i want to say here like there there is a way in which at least certain aspects of the cult the sort of dominant cultural world that has been built that many of us inhabit, whether we choose to or not. Uh, there's a way in which it has an almost um, sort of uh, dampening effect on our ability to see reality as it is. It's like, it's like part of that world, the way it's been built that we live in is to sort of just accept that this is the world. This is reality. Hey, this is real. And it's so just so implicit. We catch on to it so fast when we're so little that we can spend our whole lives living inside this world that has been built over millennia by certain people who've made certain choices, war, violence, like all of it, and just go, oh, yeah, this is reality. Like without even, not even that, that's not even like a conscious sentence in our mind. It's just like we're in it and it feels real. It's the water we're swimming in. And and what I love about science fiction and what I love in particular about your what you're saying about teaching and making visible world building is that capacity to wake up a little bit, even just, even just like a percentage point to just go, Oh shit. Like, Oh yeah. I'm wearing this shirt for a reason. You know, it's just a T it's just a t-shirt. No, but I'm wearing this for, Oh, like my hair is cut a certain way for, Oh, like that. I love that. It's such an exciting and can sometimes be quite scary and destabilizing at the same time. But I wonder if you could kind of speak more to the active, the activity of expanding people's consciousness or waking people up or just what's, what's landing with you as I riff on that. Yeah, it's, it's really 
interesting. It is really fun and interesting to watch. One thing that I think about in speculative fiction is this degree of removal that we can have depending on the story that we can have from reality. And so sometimes there are things in our real world that people don't want to look at directly, Mm -hmm. particularly people who are in positions of privilege and are not affected by um, certain, you know, issues and structures within our society. So when people don't want to look at those things directly in the real world, sometimes speculative fiction offers a place where you can look at it and you can imagine you can start to imagine what a different world would look like or Mm -hmm. what a fundamentally different set of rules would look like. And that to me has a great deal of, of potential, particularly to meet people when they are resistant to engaging Mm. with social issues in our own world. Mm. And a lot of people have spoken, a lot of scholars and writers have spoken to the relationship between activism and speculative fiction. The creators of um, Octavia's Brood, and of the genre of visionary fiction, Adrian Marie Brown and Wally Dain Marisha have spoken to this. Uh, but there is such a common core between what activists do and what speculative fiction writers do. Mm. There is mm. this common action of dreaming up what a fundamentally different world, either in the future or in an alternate existence, could look like. Mm. And so... Sometimes we're imagining what would a better and more equitable world look like. Sometimes we're imagining what would a darker world look like if we continue on some of the trajectories that we're on. So within this spectrum from the bleak to the hopeful or from the dystopian to the utopian, we're asking questions about what a different world could look like. Mm -hmm. And, um, as a writer right now, I know you're working on a novel that the introduction, a version of the introduction of which is available online called Blind Sand that I read and was like, oh, I really, really want to keep reading this. So like, I know it's in process. I don't want to put too much sort of, it's a, it's a fra- fragile and precious thing to work on something creative, but, but you are, you are clearly based on what I read in that intro, working these questions of history and identity and gender norms and privilege and who has access and who doesn't and who has status and who doesn't. And and so on that spectrum from kind of dystopian to utopian, where do you find yourself as a writer in this moment? How are you working that speculative edge? It's, that's interesting. Um, I, I think in that novel, I call it a, a desert ecological science fantasy novel because it deals with things like magical technology um, and ecological disaster. I think that within that world, I'm trying to explore a lot of things that I feel and have been interested in in our real world. And I think in some of my other work and in some of the other work that I'm interested in reading, there are 
I, I have a great love for dystopia and utopia. Right now, in a lot of my classes, I'm actually teaching those two things together, the utopian and the dystopian mm. impulse, mm. because I think there's a way in which we kind of moved um, through a peak interest in <laughs> dystopia. Um, and what we're seeing now is a lot of writers who are trying who are kind of dystopian out yeah. and who <laughs> want to start to imagine, okay, well, what if the future wasn't inherently worse? Mm. You know, what mm. if mm. there are aspects of the future that could actually be better, more equitable, more beautiful. And so we have all of these hopeful futurisms that are starting to come out like solar punk, um, futurists and indigenous futurists and Afrofuturists are doing a lot of really beautiful work in this. And it's not necessarily that you um, present a perfect world or a classic utopia, but you present a future in which some things are actually better or some, you know, some things that, are not valued in our society today become valued and become mm. Mm. so I'm very interested in writers who are starting to engage with that right now. And uh, I, I think it's, it's fueling some of my work. I certainly feel like I rarely write any speculative fiction that doesn't have a thread of hope to mm, it. Mm, mm. Yeah. I'm, as you share that, I'm struck with, uh, it might be an insight or just something worth underlining to me in this moment, this kind of realization that like dystopian futures are usually at least in, at least what's coming to mind for me, are, I'm, I'm imagining kind of two pretty common tropes. One is the, like we continue with, things as they are and it, everything gets heightened and deepened and worsened. And that one, that one can feel really alive uh, because it's like, it, it, it doesn't take too much work to look around at our current moment and see things that feel pretty, pretty dystopian um, and pretty awful for lots of people on the planet. Uh, so that's like one expression of dystopian future where it's like the corporate state or the totalitarian state or the sort of, genocidal energy or whatever it is just kind of like reaches peak awfulness and we're all kind of trapped inside that there's another dystopian future that's often kind of predicated on the collapse of it all you know and like Cormac McCarthy's road comes to mind it's just like oh it's so awful that like society's collapsed and we're reduced to this state of like eating each other (laughs) and that's like an exact like the walking dead there's like these really horrific awful but but what I what I'm in touch with as you share kind of the the wellspring of hope is that there's a utopian version of that collapse where we go like oh like finally like where we stop building these like global systems of extraction that that show up and destroy land and take away people's lives so that we can keep making single use plastic containers that will live forever like can we just stop that. Yeah, actually, we could stop that. And so there's like a kind of a collapse that has it that that I, that I'm seeing in a lot of writing where the collapse actually becomes a source of utopian possibility, as opposed to assuming 
that we just need to keep civilization going or otherwise we're going to devolve into this sort of state of, of horrific cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, and if we can see the thread from climate change right now to future climate disaster. I mean, obviously that is so evident for so many of us who are invested in climate change. But if we can see that, but if we can also see solutions that scientists and incredible people in our world have been thinking about for Mm. a long time, Mm. if we can also imagine technologies and initiatives right now that would curb climate change, why can't we also thread that into the future and map that into the future and imagine if we did make some of these changes, what could the world look like? What could we save? What could we even improve? Mm, mm, um, mm. We we connected before we started recording to Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. And that, that strikes me in this moment as a uh, a real-time example of what it might look like both to kind of reach into past wisdom, but also to imagine how that wisdom is literally braided together with, with uh, current knowledge and what that could mean for us in the future. Like there's something really, uh, maybe this is a voice in me that wants to speak to like a skeptic. It's like, there's something really pragmatic, not that everything needs to be pragmatic, but there's something really pragmatic in going, wait a minute, what have we already learned? What do we know we could do if we put our will to it? And what, where might that bring us if we actually decide, if we actually chose to start living and acting in these ways instead of living and acting in these ways? I was really struck in that book when she talked about how, in particular examples, human action could actually improve Mm, ecosystems. That we have this correlation between human societies and destruction of ecosystems. And that has not always been the case, particularly in so many indigenous societies. And so I think that's partially why I'm so excited by the work of indigenous futurists Mm, mm. who understand that we we did live equitably with the land and harmoniously with land within our human histories. And we could do that again. Mm, mm. We could find ways to do that again. It's not impossible. Mm, mm. I'm getting this, I'm getting this sort of imagery right now. I'd be curious to see what this evokes for you, but like it's a little bit goofy. But it's like there's there's like a movie poster and one movie poster is like the f- the future we might be headed to if we just kind of keep on keeping on uh, or the majority of us or the or the sort of 500 most wealthy and influential, you know, individuals and companies keep kind of control. And it's like a picture of like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and a big phallic rocket ship and like, you know, like. You know, they look, they're making themselves the heroes. Well, so many of us are just like, what the fuck? Like, stop it. You know, and that's like one movie poster. And then there's this other movie poster where, yeah, it's not like all, all beautiful flowers and sunshine, but, but there's, uh, there's like color and texture and there is, yes, increased heat and increased nature is stronger and more forceful because the climate has already changed. But we're also like, we have architecture and, uh, and uh, culture that 
that is woven together with that that new planet that that the past couple hundred years of industrialism has created and we can actually meet that and rise and rise to that and it's sort of like you know one movie poster is like really uh like intense and goofy and taking like it's taking itself really seriously but it's actually pretty goofy and awful and then the other is like subtle and understated and it's going to require some real will and effort but i'm like i want to live in that like please i'm enough of this over here enough of the story of the like captain of industry taking a rocket to mars when we can't even like take care of our own planet like can we can we shift a bit and i'm just so i want to that image came up as you were sharing and i wonder what that evokes for you it's so i what stands out to me is you say this is the this can be the more nuanced difficult world to see but it's so important to be able to see it and i encounter that when i teach dystopia and hopeful futures especially with young people it's like the teen writers I work with can create a dystopia in two seconds. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when we talk about hopeful futures, it's really difficult when we're building a world that we're trying to center hope. It still tends to bend dystopic. <laughs> you know, people still have that that impulse. We're so inundated with how terrible things can be and how terrible things can get. Uh, that it can be harder to see the the positive future. Um, and so much of speculative fiction, Octavia Butler talked about this a lot, so much of societies has to do with power. So much of world-building societies has to do with the question of power. Who has power? How do they maintain power? And so I think when we look at the power structures that exist in our world and how much power is currently held within our capitalistic society by the wealthy, um, by, you know, powerful politicians, by these people, it's so easy to see if you maintain power and you get to keep calling the shots, we know that the world mm. could become horrible. Mm. Right. And on the other hand, you have the, the work that is restorative so often takes place in communities and it takes place on a quieter, more intimate scale just between two people. So I think that it can be, more difficult to to see that future but i think it's so important to try and going back to that connection between activists and speculative fiction writers this is so often what activists are trying to do i think a lot about abolitionists who have so for so long been trying to get the world to see we could have a world without prisons and particularly in our American society where the prison industrial complex is so just completely embedded in people's sense of justice, Mm. like people can't start to imagine what a world without prisons would look like or what an alternative um, restorative justice system would look like. Mm. But 
abolitionists have been doing that work and continue to do that work. And it's incredibly important. Hmm. It's so potent to, to remind ourselves that we could look at any aspect of our society. If we, if we were awake enough and willing enough, we could take any aspect of our society that, that seems to be immutable and go, what if this wasn't here anymore? Or what if this looked differently? And um, there's something, what do I want to say about that? You know, uh, there, on the one hand, there, there's a sort of, there's the work of, for instance, abolitionists that you just described who are specifically kind of interrogating and pushing against an, some aspect of society, like our prison industrial complex, which is, we could have a whole conversation about how horrific that is. And so they're sort of taking a stand around a specific what if. And that in and of itself is like such essential work if we're ever going to make enough daylight to let in new possibilities. But then there's also the the move from, and this maybe connects back to the, the beginning of your insight around uh, world building as a way of awakening consciousness. There's also just that the move from this is to, I can ask what if, you know, like the act, just that, that the activism of, of right of fiction and story to shake people enough to see that they could even just slow down enough to go, well, what if, what, what if dot, 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 you, you fill in the blank. Someone, you know, that feels like a really, that's like a small, you know, uh, activist move. And then there's like the big activist move of like, upending a system of oppression, but like the small move of just upending the kind of self-censorship and oppression that most of us walk around with kind of not realizing that we could ask what if too. It's a fundamental question of fiction. Every time, you know, one of the, the writing games that, that will play or sort of one of the early versions of a workshop that I'll run with young people is the what if workshop where, okay, we have a, a moment to hear a little fragment of something that someone has invented. Now let's ask a ton of what if questions. What if this happened? What if this happened? It's something that comes really easily to young people. And that actually tends to get harder when I work with adults mm. a lot of the time. I think sometimes we lose the willingness to let the imagination run and we lose some of that the spontaneity of that spark but the willingness to ask that question for me is one of the fundamental acts of storytelling mm. Fiction. Mm. so cool it's really interesting to hear that you see see kind of a, a pattern around as people get older, that access to that what-if energy becomes a little bit harder to access. Um, I, I'm aware of a phrase that you wrote to me in an email, and it may take us on a total tangent, or it may actually like be a perfectly woven into everything that we, we've talked about already, but you use the phrase mutant identities, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, I got really excited about the like visceral feeling that phrase gave me without with some ideas about what I thought it meant. But I wonder if we could just presence that a bit in our conversation. Um, what what did you what were you what were you playing with when you shared that that concept with me over email? 
I don't remember the context of the email, but uh, I've been <laughs> thinking I the where I have most recently been sort of using that that phrasing is in a workshop that I've been developing with my friend Alex Hernandez. Um, we've been developing and sort of have run a few versions of a, an art and writing workshop called Monstros Inmigrantes, Creating Speculative Self-Portraits. And within that workshop, it's particularly targeted towards Latinx folks, but I think a lot of people can resonate with it. We're, we so often see in Latinx communities our hybrid identities as inherently a form of unbelonging. Mm. So the fact that as you start to assimilate in an immigrant family over the generations, you feel like you have a disconnection from your countries of origin. You feel like you have a disconnection from the country you are assimilating into. You feel like you you aren't quite Latina enough. You aren't quite American enough. You don't quite have the Spanish. You don't quite have the English. So, so many times we exist in these between spaces uh, that come as a result of migration and exile. And we are encouraging people within that workshop to look at those hybrid identities and start to examine how they can be strengths and using speculative mm, mm. imagination as a mode to do that. So when we first did this, we had um, we were drawing self-portraits and there's a, a version too where you can sort of write out a, a character sketch. But we had um, a woman who who drew herself as sort of this amphibious creature because of her adaptability and that became a superpower. Mm. You know? mm. And so we we wanted to to sort of target these things that fe- make us feel other, that make us feel like mutants, that make us feel disconnected and try to see them as sources of power. Mm. That's so cool. There's a kind of, uh, in the same way we've been talking about world building, there's this... Um, like I, I could imagine calling that sort of self-building. Like there's a way in which we start to renegotiate and reorganize how we understand ourselves in relationship to the context that we're in. And, um, you know, I, I'm curious as you, as you, as you sort of look back over the, the texture of the conversation we've had so far, it feels like there's a both end. It feels like we could, one of the future worlds we could imagine is a world where people feel less of or none of that kind of dislocation because they're not this enough or that enough. That actually like, we just have a world where that dimensionality, that multidimensionality of identity is sort of accepted as part of reality and embraced. And those superpowers are are, are consciously welcomed in by society. And, and we could imagine like part of what we need to get there is more people right now who are willing to do that work of creating spaces where they themselves and others can 
Oh, we got a little kitty cat here. Hello. Yeah, he has to be cradled. Oh, <laughs> so cute. Yeah, like there's something there's something about also, although it's work and can be a, a burden to sort of say like, actually, we, we gosh, we need more people who are willing to investigate the corners of themselves and their identities that live out at these margins so that that we can bring more of the margins in to our to ourselves and to our communities right now rather than waiting for some future context where that that is natural. And I wonder how you hold that, like both building a world where that becomes possible, but also doing it right now in a world that is often pretty inimical to that, that doesn't want, you know, these mutant identities to be present, that wants everyone to fit in a certain box or check a certain label on the census. Well, it comes back to the the question of, difference and whether we see difference as strength and beauty or whether we see it as something to fear and certainly in so many dictatorships throughout our history in so many terrifying political situations the the cornerstone has been division and the cornerstone has been creating a sense of fear around difference and creating a sense of fear around people of particular identities or people outside of a particular value norm. And we, we just can never create that more equitable, beautiful future if that has such a stranglehold on society and on people's just internal personal belief and how people operate in the world. I think about that, of course, even on the scale of, of storytelling and of fiction as a writer, you know, what are the stories that we see out in the world who is allowed to exist and occupy the center of a story. Um, You know, we don't have to go to speculative fiction to see the world differently. Basically all cultures in our world see reality differently Mm. from one another. And so we don't have to invent a world to expand our sense of how we view time, how we view place, how we view history. We just have to expand our horizons in, you know, what stories we are willing to let into our scope and let into our, our hearts and our empathy. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for that. That really, there's a way in which uh, everything we're talking about can actually live right, right at your doorstep, right at the right at the 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 neighborhood cafe, right at right at the state line, right at the like whatever border or threshold that that we draw around ourself and other is a place where these meetings and interchanges can happen, where some some wisdom that sits outside our worldview is just right there waiting for us if we're willing to listen. Yeah. You know, fantasy nerds, we love to show each other our book collections and I've got <laughs> a friend who 
I, I'll go over to a friend's house and see the fantasy book collection quite often of like white male friends. And I'll see all of these incredible invented worlds and 99% of them are written by white men in a very Western context. And so I'm the friend who will for Christmas be like, Hey, so, you know, you like Isaac Asimov, try Octavia Butler. <laughs> like nice, you like nice. Brandon Sanderson, here's some NK Jemison. And you know, why, why are we so willing to, to travel to these other worlds without first looking at other ways to view the world mm. within the reality mm. we occupy. Mm. Mm. Awesome. I feel like, so just one of my takeaways is let's just have send Sarah out to every book nerds, you know, white, white dude book nerds house and be like, here, here's your, here's your reading list. Here's the stack of books. Just like my dad used to give me like, here you go. Talk to me, talk to me in, in a couple, you know, a couple of months since you, when you've read all these. <laughs> exactly. I wonder, is there, um, we're kind of approaching the home stretch for today. Is there, is there something that you feel of yours that you f- might feel inspired to share poetry or prose in this space? Yeah, I could share something. Uh, I might share, you said that people tend to share poetry or we can share poetry. I'm, I'm a poet as, as well as a fiction, speculative fiction writer. So I think I'll share a poem mm. I pulled this poem up because we were talking about expansiveness and and opening and opening ourselves up to things. And I write, I, I feel like so much of my writing is infused with grief and trying to find how, how we start to tease open spaces of light within grief um, so this was a poem that I wrote. This is in the latest issue of Waxwing magazine called Bird Sanctuary, the poem. And it's a poem that I wrote. It was after my dad passed away unexpectedly in 2017. And the following, no, it was t- early 2019. I went to Miami for work. And I went for the first time to his father's grave in Little Havana. Um, And I wrote this poem after that, that visit to the cemetery. So it's called Bird Sanctuary. And it has an epigraph from one of my favorite poets of all time, Alejandra Pizarnik. And in Spanish, it reads, Palabras que nos surgen de algún lado como pájaros que huyen de nuestro interior porque algo los ha amenazado, which means words that rise within us from somewhere, like birds that flee from our interiors because something has threatened them. I have a poem in me tonight, sounding out, start of contact, wingtips to ribcage. It has nowhere to go but a fountain at the gates of a cemetery in Little Havana. How do I coax it to land there? 
How do I convince it, yes, this is a safe place even though everyone here is dead? How do I get it to go where it needs? Release, release, no, don't escape back inside me. I may never get you close again. You need to breathe before I die. Your wings are weighed by something wet, blood or birth or refuse. Do you think I expected to give birth yet? I expected my father to live to meet my children. He expected more. I'm sorry, I'm closing. A cage, I'm making it harder for you. What I want to tell you is that pain moves in two directions. My father, who will not meet my children, never knew where his own father was buried. It fractured him sometimes, that pain no longer bird, hardly recognizable as word. But the cemetery where my grandfather is buried is a sanctuary for birds. So I want you to know you can go there. There will be no bone encircling you. That you, if not me, if not he, will see all you could want. Seed, sky, other birds, tissue left in trash cans, material for a nest. Don't retreat. You're almost out. You've almost pierced, acute and localized. Localizar means I have identified the pain on a larger map. Look for the fountain, and I will part like a promise for you. I will be strong enough to open. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you mm. for letting me share it. Yeah. Would it be right if I just share something I'm in, in touch with, having heard that? Yeah, of course. Um. This line, pain moves in two directions. Is that the line? Pain moves in two directions. Uh, and I like just really honor that. And, and I'm also touched by the beauty of this idea that, that you found your way to the place where your grandfather was buried. That it sounds like, at least in the poem, there's a line that your father didn't know where that place was and it fractured him. Uh, and I'm just also touched by what feels to me like the offering in this poem that also healing and love and hope can move in two directions or multiple directions, that there's a way in which your arrival there is something, does something for you and for him and, and for your children, if and when they arrive to the world. So I just was really, really moved by that. That is a, something I didn't necessarily know was in there. That is absolutely in there. Mm, 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 mm. mm. Sarah, this has been really fun. What a like, what a great excuse to reconnect for me. I'm so glad you said yes to this. I uh, am excited for folks who are hearing this, hopefully to to find their way to your poetry and to your writing. I know you contributed to this really cool like futuristic fairy tale book, and you're working on your manuscript, and you've got a lot of stuff out there in print and some of it online. So I'm really excited for folks to read more. And, and if they want to do that, what's the best place? Like, where should they find your work online if they want to do that? Um, has to be updated. <laughs> I have to update the website. Because <laughs> uh, it definitely excuse. doesn't have, like, <laughs> I think it still says that my my um, book is coming soon, September 2021. Uh, so I really so have to that um but when i update it this week <laughs> um a, a lot of 
all of the work I have published online should be listed on my website and linked on my website, on my writer page. Um, I'm on Instagram and, and Twitter uh, at SDR underscore arts. And so people can connect with the, me there. They can connect with me through my website and the website's a good place to start to either read work online or sort of order um, books and anthologies that that I'm part of. Amazing. And you're also uh, still teaching online courses through Grub Street, even though you're not here in Boston anymore. Is that right? If folks... Yes. Yeah, I, I teach remotely for Grub Street uh, and I consult for Grub Street as well. And then I do private coachings, coachings and consultations through my own... Um, sort of company as as well as a freelancer awesome so people can always contact me if they're if they want feedback on a piece of writing if they want coaching if they want a reader for a complete manuscript i i do all of that mm, mm. well for what it's worth as as uh as a data point of one like for anyone listening i've i can fully endorse sarah's capacity to give you really really powerful feedback on your writing so thank you for that too Thank you. All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm excited for folks to hear this. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And thank you, Sarah, for being here in the Wonder Dome. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.